Hello, my name is Justin McLuhan. I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about everyone's favorite, Mickey Rudy. The man who, when Sir Lawrence Olivier was asked, who is the greatest actor in the world, said, Mickey Rooney, he can do anything. And that is an actual quote, not a joke, which is usually the way that Mickey Rooney is treated. It's certainly the way that we've treated him over the years. Yes. Mickey Rooney has come up on this podcast a number of times. As a punchline. Always as a punchline. Usually it's us talking about um, his reality show mm-hmm. that he shot a pilot for. Has anyone talked about Mickey Rooney, our age, without mentioning his appearance in The Simpsons? I was the biggest star in the world from 1939 to 1940. <laughs> wow! Two whole decades <laughs> and it's actually till 1941 oh. and he was the biggest star like yeah. that's not even a joke in a time where gone with the wind was coming out and all those classic films in 1939 mickey rooney was on top mickey rooney i think was the longest lasting star mm-hmm. i mean he he was only on top for a little while but from the early 30s to 2014 Mm -hmm. he was active he passed away at the age of 93 years old Mm -hmm. only a few weeks after appearing in a film that oh boy (laughs) well he shot two movies in his last month alive Mm -hmm. one of them was night at the museum three Mm -hmm. the other one was called dr jekyll and mr hyde Look up the trailer for that one. <laughs> yes. It looks oh, a little boy. sad. But I think the thing that me and Will learned doing this episode is that Mickey Rooney was a great actor. I was kind of blown away mm-hmm. by all the things I saw him in because he's a great actor and he could do all sorts of different things, mm-hmm. you know? Like in the Mickey and Judy musicals from the 30s, the ones he did with Judy Garland or with the Andy Hardy series. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's peppy, he's energetic, he's fun, but he can play understated, he can play, he can be intimidating, mm-hmm. he can be scary. He can do it all! But what he can't do is be a part of some real masterpieces because that's the issue with Mickey Rooney. If you look at his letterbox profile, you know what the first picture is? Breakfast at Tiffany's? Yep. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Probably his best movie. Oh, uh, my God. No, no thanks to him, though. No. As um, everybody knows, Mickey Rooney's role in Breakfast at Tiffany's, the um, yellow face character yeah. who is all over the trailer, too. He is the character who, whenever anybody talks about about breakfast at Tiffany's, they say. Well, uh, except for the Mickey Rooney part. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but he somehow stayed in the industry for as long as he did doing bit roles. And you know what? He was in great movies. I watched Requiem for a Heavyweight uh, this week where he has a supporting role, basically third build under Anthony Quinn, Jackie Gleason. And he's great in it. Understated, controlled, the sympathetic heart of the movie. He is in many movies that people have seen. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen him in at least something. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, maybe. (laughs) No one our age has seen it. No one our age has seen it. But lots of people our parents' age have seen (laughs) it. Yes. Uh, The Black Stallion. Mm -hmm. People have seen Night of the Museum. One, two, and three. That's right. Which, as you pointed out, he had to audition for. He had to audition for Night at the Museum. I mean, it was in his late 80s at the time that he started in those films. He is very funny in Night at the Museum. <laughs> he is very <laughs> funny. All right, so let's jump back. Mickey Rooney, he's born to vaudeville parents. The story goes they put him on stage at the age of two in a little tuxedo. I guess because uh, he loves the stage. Also, they wouldn't have to pay him. Yeah, I think they were trying to do something sort of like the three Keatons, you mm. know, the Buster Keaton. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, Michael Keaton. 
Oh, yeah. His yeah. brother, Richard Keaton. But, you know, his parents were uh, a difficult, itinerant folk. His father drank himself to death, and his mother uh, was forced into the world's oldest profession when he was a very young man. Mm-hmm. So he came from a bit of a rough-and-tumble upbringing, but pretty much as soon as uh, he could talk, he was in the movies. His first thing of note in film was he was the star of this series of films called the Mickey Maguire movies, which were basically rip-offs of the R Gang Little Rascals comedies. And no one ever talks about them. I was shocked to learn that he was in them, and he was in 80 of them. And yeah, and he was, what, five years old? Five maybe? years old, yeah. And from there, uh, just never stopped. Was acting constantly. One of the early breaks was him playing Puck in the famous production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that Warner Brothers did in the 30s. And his big, like, rise to fame was with the Andy Hardy movies. Now, I dipped into the Andy Hardy series because this was his signature franchise franchise this was the series that more or less created the teen movie Mm -hmm. and in fact when they started making these movies like the first one or two were were so big that you know louis b mayer and the other executives at mgm were like if movies with teenagers in them do well is that gonna compete with our regular stable of grown-up actors yeah like uh mickey rooney was so good in the role of Andy Hardy in a film that wasn't an Andy Hardy film. He was part of an ensemble mm-hmm. with a family and people responded to him so much. They're like, well, I guess we're going to make more Andy Hardy films and oh boy, they crank them out. You know, I was watching Love Finds Andy Hardy from I think 1938, mm-hmm. which is also an early pairing of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, the co-star who he would be most associated with. I was watching it thinking that this feels a lot like an Archie comic, and wouldn't you know it, it actually inspired the Archie comics. Mickey Rooney invented the teenager. Yes. (laughs) Yes, he did. And you know what? You watch it, and you're like, boy, if I were a teenager, I would find so much to identify with here, you know? (laughs) Going to the soda fountain. Yep. Uh, I mean, the whole gimmick of the Andy Hardy films was that he was an excitable, energetic teenager who would make the wrong decision and then kind of, you know, learn a lesson and go back to his family by the end of the movie. Now, in Love Finds Andy Hardy, so Andy is, you know, the son. His father is a judge, Mm -hmm. you know, a very upstanding man in the community. His mother is his mother. And Andy is, as the movie opens, trying to buy a car. So he puts a down payment of $12 and he needs another $8 by the end of the week for a car. $12. I looked at how much $12 was worth when the movie... $500,000 now, Nope, it was like $300. Not very much. Imagine $300 down payment for a <laughs> Yep. Nope, that's not the way capitalist society works. Will, supply, and demand. Well, anyway, the big dance is coming up, and he's got a girl that he wants to take to the big dance, so he wants to have a car to take her. But meanwhile, his friend is dating Lana Turner. Mm-hmm. And his friend is going out of town for a little while. He says, hey, Andy, could you uh, keep watch of my gal? Because my gal's real hot stuff. Va, va, voom. <sighs> and just make sure that none of the boys hit on her. And, uh, you know, Andy Hardy, uh, don't, don't trust... Andy with your girl. Because yeah, because he's a sex fiend, he's just like um, just <laughs> the, the Mickey Rooney himself. And and gosh, you know, Lana likes him, and she's kissing him, but his other girl, his main squeeze, you know, he likes her too, and gee whiz, I mean, can't you be in love with two gals at once? And, <laughs> a real uh, Betty and Veronica situation, if you will. You could say that, yeah. Yep. And who am I going to take to the dance? There's also another girl in the mix who's uh, 12 years old, so it's completely platonic, but played by the definitely over 12 years old Judy Garland. Yes. And she <laughs> has a big crush on Andy from afar. Mm-hmm. and But she's helping him navigate this romantic situation. Now, 
Uh, this movie is not really for me. I mean, it's not for anybody living right now. No. Um, but it is. It's cute, you know. Yeah. It, it, I can imagine if I were a kid in 1938, maybe I would enjoy it. I mean, we both watched Babes in Arms as well, which is essentially an Andy Hardy film where Mickey Rooney plays the son of um, vaudeville uh, stars that are a little bit washed up, but he wants to show them, ah, we can put on a show too that's just as good and if not better and fresher the new old yeah. hack. So give me that shoe polish and let's do a minstrel show. Yeah. Oh, no. What's some cutting edge entertainment? The yep. entertainment of the future. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, an extended 10 minute blackface scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Mickey Rooney in this film is charming. He's very energetic. He's really into it. Well, I was definitely sold on this movie in the first like two minutes. Mm. When the first time you see him is uh, he's, he's singing and he's dancing and Judy's at the piano and mm. they're playing good morning good, good morning. morning yeah yeah yep. Viagra and ad. then the, <laughs> that's right the guy dunking the basketball going up in the elevator yeah. you know the drill yeah and in that scene they tell him oh, we're gonna buy the song and he's like oh, oh and he does like a big shtick where wow. he like passes out gee whiz yeah there's a scene in the Andy Hardy movie I saw where like he's running up the stairs and he falls down the stairs mm. and he gets up and it's like I'm okay <laughs> yep I will grow up to be a normal looking adult oh Mickey <laughs> <laughs> I mean I was watching Love Finds Andy Hardy and thinking this guy's really weird looking even even (laughs) Even, as a teenager. I I mean he didn't look as odd as he (laughs) would and so we should point out that these movies wholesome lovable were made in a hell place that is called MGM. I was reading this biography of Mickey Rooney this week the life and times of Mickey Rooney. Great biography. I I loved it I was riveted because Mm. not only is it gives you a lot of interesting information about Mickey but the times he lived in yeah I mean he spanned a century basically. (laughs) Yeah he did. Yeah and his time at MGM was a time where Imagine being 12 years old and being given whatever you want in the world. Mm -hmm. And then those repercussions and the pressure of having all this choice come to haunt you and to destroy you and crush you. For the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. I mean, Mickey Rooney's career was essentially defined by his gambling problems. He once said that, ah, you know, you spend $2 at the track and then you spend $3 million trying to get it back. As a young man, he was given everything he wanted, but was he given everything he needed? No. No, certainly not financial advice. Certainly not good salary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he was paid... Garbage compared to what his movies were pulling in. Yes. And, you know, he went bankrupt many times in his life. <laughs> and, you know, to have a sad flash-forward... He passed away a few days before going to a convention to sign autographs for money in hand. In his estate, he had $18,000 total to his name when he died. Yeah, I mean, he was trying to sell his Oscar, but apparently you can't sell your Oscar. Why not? It's his. I know, I know. Why not? (laughs) He's like, I'm 93 years old. What's an 83-year-old man going to use an Oscar for? (laughs) So Mickey Rooney had those Andy Hardy films. He had Babes in Arms. But he never, like, got that movie afterwards. Like, he never got, like, the big Oscar push that was beyond his teenage years. He was, incredibly enough, nominated for Best Actor for Babes in Arms. (laughs) It was a slow year. (laughs) I mean, people just had Mickey fever. Yeah, people loved Mickey. Okay, there's a scene in Babes in Arms when the movie just stops dead so he can do an impression of Clark Gable. (laughs) Yes, a terrible impersonation. (laughs) He was famous for that impersonation. Really? And then he does Lionel Barrymore, too. I love that that movie is all about how actors are amazing. Like, at one point, the mayor's like... Ah, uh, you know, actors, they built the church. They paved the roads. They're the ones that brought laughter and happiness in our heart. 
and you want to rip their children away from them? Show me the lie. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you were mentioning a minute ago what a moral cesspool MGM was. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a place where, I mean, Eddie Mannix mm-hmm. from Coen Brothers movie Hail Caesar was based on a real man, yes. Eddie Mannix. The, who was in charge of making sure that all the stars stayed in line. So let's say, um, I don't know, maybe... A famous screenwriter who would become a famous director kills a man while drunk behind the wheel. Eddie Mannix can just clean that up. Or let's say Mickey Rooney has walked in on off flagrant delicto. I don't know. What's the phrase? Uh, <laughs> yeah, close enough. I'm uh, not gonna, you're uh, asking me? I'm not going to try to say that. Coitus interrupt us with a very underage Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Mannix is your fixer. He's the one who's going to keep that out of Luella Parsons' column. And um, Mickey Rooney kept Eddie Mannix very busy. Very, very <laughs> busy this man fucked a lot yes i mean his autobiography is filled (laughs) with graphic details of his sexual exploits talking about his first wife ava gardner she called me her sex midget yeah (laughs) and uh and he tasted the warm milk uh isn't that what he said yeah (laughs) talking about he describes uh uh, at length the shape and feel of her nipples and her vagina all right we don't need to get too we already have an explicit uh, thing besides this podcast (laughs) we don't need an x rating just pick up mickey rooney's autobiography Don't do that. Pick up the one we mentioned before, because it covers all that stuff. And, you know, that's what I love about the autobiography we're talking about, is that I was expecting it to, like be nice to Mickey Rooney and just be like, ah, what a great actor in the world, did him a disservice. But the book starts with an introduction with the author of a previous biography who's like, yeah, Mickey Rooney wouldn't give me anything. So the book I published sucked. Here's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we watched some of the later period Rooney films. Because in World War II, Mickey went off to the army mm. for, for a year or two. And not like Elvis went off to the army. He was actually at the front lines doing entertainment and stuff like that. He was in danger. I, and they, I mean, he was so depressed that he just married a woman after a day, basically. <laughs> I mean, according to um, some reports uh, of his seven marriages, <laughs> that was something he did a lot. He used to say, you know, get married in the morning, so if you get a divorce, you won't have wasted the day. Uh, the sense that I got from reading the book was that the ones who wouldn't sleep with them Mm-hmm. He'd be like, marry me, marry me. Because, because like, not many people wouldn't sleep with him mm-hmm. back in the day. So it was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Why can't I have this one? Why can't I have this one? You know? I mean, Ava Gardner said that when they met on their first date, he asked her to marry him. And then he would not stop for, like, months until <laughs> yeah. she finally gave in. And imagine fucking Andy Hardy asking you over and over again. <laughs> full tilt. <laughs> not a charming look. Uh, but we watched some of his... Not Poverty Row films, but lower-rung films, B-movies. Because after he came back from the war, times had changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andy Hardy was no longer popular. But he tried. And uh, (laughs) Mickey had also changed. He looked older, a little less cute. He never had, like an adult face. Like, someone actually posted a video of, like, morphs of Mickey Rooney throughout the years. And it goes from, like, odd-looking teenager to, like, 50-year-old man (laughs) within one morph. Now, we watched his noir movie, Drive a Crooked Road, Mm -hmm. which was on the Criterion channel recently. And I liked it. It's not, like, the greatest noir in the world, but I thought it was, like, pretty solid. And Mickey is, I think, incredible in it. For a guy who was known as being, like, this wild, crazy, energetic guy, when you take somebody like that and you ask him to bottle it up, there's, like, always something bubbling under the surface. Yeah. That's a movie where the whole time you're waiting for him to explode. Yeah. And that's what, I don't want to say suspense, but, like, 
that's like the thesis of the film. Mm -hmm. And the way that it treats that is really interesting. Even if the film, great pedigree, written by the director of Breakfast at Tiffany's, Blake Edwards, Mm -hmm. has um, Kevin McCarthy from UHF and Invasion of the Body Snatchers Mm -hmm. as one of the main characters. You know, it is a minor noir, but that Rooney performance at the center of it. Mm. Yeah, so he plays an incel who suddenly finds himself mysteriously pursued by this uh, sexy young woman, Vava Voom. And she wants to spend time with him. And then, well, of course, there are greater complications. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to uh, spoil it. Spoil There's it. not much to spoil. Well, yeah, it kind of goes what you think. Mm-hmm. He plays a race car driver and they need him for a job. And like Mickey the entire time spends the film with like a big scar across his face. Mm-hmm. And you almost feel that he's internalizing this outward marking as something that defines him as a person. Well, well, this is a guy who, you know, the character is Mm 40-ish, and he has given up all hope of having companionship. And so, like, he he gives you so little, and he's so suspicious, but it's like he doesn't want to give anything because he doesn't want to be rejected. Mm -hmm. And even when, you know, the traumatic moments occur, the moments that ought to be the parts where he explodes, he doesn't. No, he keeps it inside. He's resigned because he's been keeping it inside for so long. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, like, the perfect sweet spot for Mickey Rooney, that, like, no major production ever kind of grabbed him and utilized that. And I think a lot of it stemmed from the fact that he was known as a difficult guy to work with. Mm. That, like, you watch The Comedian, uh, the John Frankenheimer Playhouse film... And on that picture, he supposedly, like, improvised all the time. And John Frankenheimer was like, you can't improvise. This is live to television. If you're somewhere else and I cut to you, you're not going to be in the shot. His performance on that was is very extreme. <laughs> yes, very big. Yeah. Trying to do his best Jerry Lewis, who turned the part down. <laughs> so did you watch any later period, Mickey? Oh, well, I also watched from his noir period, Babyface Nelson, directed by Don Siegel, who, of course, did Dirty Harry and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and many other fine films. I uh, had pretty high hopes for Babyface Nelson, and it's only okay. Yeah, it's a real solid, again, like a B noir. Yeah. Like he never, you know, Rooney never got together with someone like um, Robert Siodmak or uh, the big noir directors because he's always like pushed to the sidelines. Like Don Siegel, who directed that picture, was like coming on his way up. And that was like a little quickie that he made. And Mickey Rooney was that Nick Cage-like star power that he needed yeah. to be able to sell the movie more easily. It's quite an unpleasant character to be around for a long time. But Mickey Rooney sells it very well because Babyface Nelson, he definitely looks his height in the movie. He mm-hmm. is framed to look five foot two. And he he is constantly coming across like this very like tough little five foot two guy who is like a guy who is capable of killing you, but who also has these weird like sexual pathologies. Mm-hmm. And he's very insecure about his height. And so it is this mix of this guy who's very intimidating, but is also a baby. <laughs> yes. You know? I mean, he would play an adult baby in that Spanish film that I don't remember the title I for. I remember the title. There is a movie from the 90s. Oh, The Milky Way, isn't it? Or something it, like that. The, the Milky Life, I think. The Milky Life. The That's Milky what it life. is. It's from the 90s. And it is a Spanish movie where he plays a millionaire who decides to live his life as a baby. <laughs> and I encourage you to look up the five minute clip that's on YouTube that'll that'll <laughs> horrifying do you. you see you have to see speaking Mickey of suckling breasts <laughs> walking around in a diaper mm-hmm. you know we talk about that he never had that masterpiece or that even that great film and it's because he never stopped working and he never said no he has hundreds and hundreds of credits 
on his filmography. I mean, there are some movies he said no to. I found out by watching his reality show that mm-hmm. he said no to Dances with Wolves because they didn't talk about money with him. Mm-hmm. He said no to a couple of... Uh, a All couple in of, the Family, the Archie Bunker oh, role. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It might not have been as good with him. I mean, I never watched All in the Family, but he actually turned it down because he went, listen, no one's going to be able to, like, handle a character this racist. Maybe he wouldn't have been able to. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, he was in a sitcom with Dana Garvey and Nathan Lane, which is considered one of the worst sitcoms of all time. Isn't it called, like, Just One of the Boys? (laughs) Just One of the Boys, yeah. But, so, he did have a comeback. There was a period in the 60s and 70s when he was acting in a lot of very bottom-of-the-barrel movies, doing whatever he could. But in the late 70s, there were were two things that happened. He had a Broadway show called Sugar Babies that was very, very successful. He went on tour with it. He he made millions of dollars on it. That That he he flushed down down the drain. Uh, And he also had The Black Stallion. Mm -hmm. I watched The Black Stallion this week. Never seen it before. And Mickey Rooney is fine in it. It's a movie that, like, I love the first 50 minutes where it's a boy trapped on an island befriending this Black Stallion. Not so much the latter half where it's a boy who enters the Black Stallion in a race for some reason. It's not like they're going to take it away from him because he's fine, he's living, and Mickey Rooney, uh, he seems okay too. They win the big race. The end. (laughs) The common rap on that movie, which I have not seen since I was a child, is that the second half is kind of a betrayal of the first half. Mm -hmm. Because the first half is very, it's almost experimental. Yes. No dialogue. It's just the kid and the horse. And then it becomes an inspirational sports movie. Mm -hmm. Not Like, I love sports movies. It just felt very, like... Laissez-faire. Like, the director's like, I don't really care. It's no flyaway home from the same director. (laughs) It did spawn Mickey's only successful television program, The Adventures of the Black Stallion. (laughs) That's insane. That that lasted three seasons. How much material can you get? I mean, that's longer than that, um, the Deadwood Guys show where they killed all those horses. It was on TV when I was a kid. Uh, And you watch, you know, I I didn't love it or anything. It was just on. on. (laughs) Hi, Young Hercules and The Adventures of the Black Stallion. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No. It was. It was. What a that, long gap sequel too. It was made in the early nineties. The yeah. film came out in the seventies. Yeah. Uh, so another movie that I watched this week because I just could not get enough Mickey was I watched Silent Night Deadly Night Five. The Toy Maker. The Toy Maker, starring Mickey as the Toy Maker, and I was tempted to watch this one because Mickey had famously condemned the first Silent Night, Deadly Night. That's right. And then yeah. 10 years later, there he was eating crow, starring in the fifth. I'm sure he did not remember decrying <laughs> the first one. <laughs> yep, he plays a killer who is revealed to be a robot at the end. <laughs> and he dresses as Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And I think he's very good at it. Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, Mickey commits. Here's the thing. You'll never find an uncommitted Mickey performance Mm -hmm. because he just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. He was like a born entertainer. So if he was up on screen, he was acting his heart out. There's like one shot of him in the Muppet movie, the Jason Segel one. Mm -hmm. And like he gives it his all when he turns on the camera, like pulls his hat off to sing a line from the song. (laughs) You know, I wish that towards the end of his life, they made one more Andy Hardy movie. (laughs) Like I wish some enterprising young filmmaker had got the Like a Max Rose? Yeah, a Max Rose. And he just called it like 
Andy Hardy. Yeah. It was, Everybody's dead. Or just had Andy Hardy in a movie sort of the way that like Mookie shows up in Red Hook Summer. Oh, yeah. You know? Like in the background like, somewhere. Yeah, just Andy Hardy floating in a movie. Maybe he somewhere. was playing Andy Hardy in the Muppet movie. You know what? That's canon. <laughs> yeah, we decided it. I mean, there's a long gap Andy Hardy film that came out in the 60s. That's right. It's like um, Welcome Home Andy Hardy or something like and it that. It was not that successful. No, if nobody I wanted to see cared that. cared enough about Andy Hardy, I would check it out <laughs> but we don't we're archie stands <laughs> through and through yeah that's right we can't not talk about the reason we wanted to do this episode which was the meet the roonies reality show and i should say pilot presentation because it never went to air that's right this was towards the very very end of his life i believe it was his eighth wife jan who mm-hmm. he was with uh, who he was married to for something like 30 or 40 years. And I know that they often, like, they toured with a show called Let's Put On a Show. Ugh. And so they were always trying to find ways to monetize the Mickey Rooney brand because they needed to keep money coming in. Mm-hmm. And also, this was around the time that Mickey Rooney eventually sued his stepson for elder abuse. Yeah. Well, and, you know, his stepson said that it's because... They couldn't give Mickey money because if they gave him money, he would go and gamble it away. But there's also reports of his wife just physically abusing him. Like locking him in a room, Mm -hmm. depriving him of food, taking away his passport, stuff like that. Making the original hilarity of the Meet the Roonies um, reality show not as funny with that contextual information. So it's not as funny knowing that we're looking at an elder abused man. Suffering from dementia. Suffering from dementia, but... God help me. It is funny. (laughs) I mean, there are some things on that show. Okay, so maybe it's not funny, but you watch him in that show. It's it's like a 15-minute sizzle reel. It's a mix of Mickey being just a maudlin showbiz creature and yelling and screaming. Well, I think that the most surprising thing is, why would you make a reality show about this man? Like, have you not met him? Like, he's obviously... Not all there. Yeah. Because he'll like be very low and then suddenly he'll scream and be like, get the fuck away from me. Well, there's a scene where they go have lunch at a beautiful rich person's restaurant Mm -hmm. and he goes there and they announce, look, everyone, it's Mickey Rooney. And he's like blowing kisses and shaking hands and everything. But then after he's at his table, when some fan comes over to get his autograph, Jan is very nice to the fan. But Mickey is like, all right, fine, fine. You know, Mm -hmm. and he's been quoted saying like, I hate the fucking parasites. Want the blood from my veins? Because, you know, he'd lived a whole life. With 93 people, years. People taking money from him mm-hmm. at every stage of his life. Yeah. You want my autograph? I gave you entertainment. Yeah. And now you want this? And I mean, there are some funny scenes in the sense like they go see Jack Nicholson, but he's not home. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's a part where uh, uh, Mickey is yelling at his stepson. You're a pathetic excuse for a man. And he was right. Yeah, And he was a scream for help because he was being abused. Yeah. And you're still laughing, big smile on your face. You know, sometimes reality is complicated. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I mean, this episode has just taught me that Mickey Rooney was a great actor who acted a lot and never got the roles that he needed. Okay, so in that reality show, Mm. he meets Ben Stiller. and, And it's very nice that Ben Stiller is on the reality show with him. But you definitely get the sense that, okay, Ben's doing him a favor here. And he goes to Jack Nicholson's house and Jack's not home. So he goes back into the car and like Mickey Rooney, like it ought to be an honor to meet Mickey Rooney. It should. Yeah. Right. Like, like Ben Stiller should like in a perfect world. But you have to remember that Ben Stiller, what are his memories of Mickey Rooney? They're not the Andy Hardy films. They're him as a legacy actor. Yeah. Like, you know, Ben Stiller probably has 
very vague recollections of Mickey Rooney acting, just like we did. And, and like, nothing against Ben Stiller. No, I think, yeah. Like, it's great that Ben Stiller gave him work and everything. What's just sad is that at 90 years old or 93 mm. years old, Mickey Rooney, like, is not being treated as a proper legend. No. You know? He's being treated as a joke. <laughs> yeah, he has to crawl around, you know, going to Jack Nicholson's house and getting turned away. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Did you read that? He sto- should be Jack Nicholson. Did you read you know? the story of... Um... Bill Murray said that he saw Mickey Rooney at a party a few weeks before he died at the Toronto International Film Festival, the Vanity Fair party. And he's like, Mickey, what are you doing? Sit in the corner. He just hung out with Mickey Rooney the entire night. Oh, that rules. Yeah. Fuck, I wish I knew Mickey was in Toronto. Why would he uh, have been in Toronto? What film? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? I would have, we could have called him. We could have hung out with him. (laughs) I don't think, you fucking parasites. Wouldn't you love to hang out with Mickey Rooney? No, I don't think so. Well, I would. I mean, that's where the real fans come from. (laughs) So, you know, if you had to recommend one Mickey Rooney film, what would it be? I would say don't expect too much from it, but watch Drive a Crooked Road Mm, because it'll show you a different side of Mickey Rooney. I would say watch Requiem for uh, a Heavyweight Mm -hmm. because there you get like great Mickey Rooney. Mm -hmm. Do not watch the film, the TV movie that people said was his big comeback. Oh, Bill. Bill. Where he goes full Simple Jack. (laughs) Yes, he does. (laughs) And he was lauded for his performance. He won an Emmy. He won a Golden Globe. The the synopsis says the R word right in it. It it was a different time, right? Watch some clips of it, though, because (laughs) it is really something. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And this week on our Patreon, what are we doing, Will? Hudson Hawk. Ah, we're going to catch the excitement, catch the suspense, catch the hawk. This is Bruce Willis at the height of the Bruno era. <laughs> the Bruno era. Before his second life, I would say. So, you know, there are so many movies in recent decades that were flops at the time they came mm. out, but we now recognize them as masterpieces. Did we recognize Hudson Hawk as a masterpiece? Well, you're going to have to listen to find That's out. That's right. Uh, Will had never seen it before, so we have a discussion. Is it a Kung Pao-like discussion? Gotta listen. $5 a month, patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. Next week, it's summertime, baby, and you know what that means? Sequels. Yeah! So I'm really uh, looking forward to, I don't know, what are sequels that we're looking forward to? Oh, uh, Men in Black International. <laughs> yeah! Can't wait for that to come out. <laughs> oh, boy. I read that article that you uh, mentioned a few podcasts ago. How was there that many script problems? It's like, one ego, like, fueled producer fucking sank the entire production. Right, because the director, F. Gary Gray, wanted to turn it into sort of a, a parable about immigration. Mm-hmm. And everybody liked the original script. Like, that's yeah. why everybody signed on. And the producer who, who had produced the original Men in Blacks, which stink, uh, was <laughs> like, hey... We need to change this and just sand off all the edges to the point that the lead stars hired their own people to write dialogue. Which is horrifying. <laughs> what is that? Like, uh, it's unbelievable. So we're not going to talk about that next week. But no, we, are we are gonna... talking about Men in Black 2. No. Yeah. <laughs> we are going to talk about some notable sequels in history. What mm. is a sequel? Why is a sequel? Mm-hmm. What are the types of sequels? That's right. Like there are revisionist sequels. There are sequels that try to do the same movie over again. Mm-hmm. Your Hangover 2s, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and then, But then there are movies like... The Exorcist 2. The Heretic. I have a Screen Factory Blu-ray 
collecting dust on my shelf. Pazuzu. Yeah, that's right. Gotta watch the original theatrical cut and the re-edited version. <laughs> no. I mean, I've seen the original cut. Yeah, but maybe it's good now. Now you have a cosmic brain and you can come and approach it from there. Well, according to William Friedkin, it's the worst movie ever made. So uh, William Friedkin's full idiot. of hot air. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're also gonna watch, I believe, Jaws 2. Jaws 2, because I want to see, I want to talk about a sequel where they just tried to redo the same thing. Why does it fail compared to the original? And we'll also be talking about Return to Oz. Yes. Return to Oz. Was that a part of your childhood? It wasn't a part of mine. I didn't like it when I saw it as a kid. Yeah. It it bothered me. Too scary. Too scary, yeah. (laughs) So we're going to talk about those three films, and we're going to talk about a hundred other sequels that we know, and that people are going to be like, why don't you talk about this one? Don't worry. We're going to talk about Hot Shots Part 2. And we'll talk about Love Finds Andy Hardy again. (laughs) Yep. All right. So until then, I'm John DeGlue. I'm Will Slum. Thanks for listening. There's like a seedy feeling when you talk about someone as like a Hollywood fan, don't you think? Yeah, because it seems a bit like there's a boulevard of broken dreams mm. thing. It's like a bottom feeder. Yeah, thing, like yeah. he's just there. Like, I guess that's like an entourage, like people that are just hanging out. A Hollywood fan means you like the idea of like fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just want to be around it because then you're within its sphere and you feel important yourself. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about someone like David Del Vale, who I think, in my opinion, is the ultimate Hollywood fan. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy that I think I only discovered maybe through his commentary tracks that he's done some with David Dakota because mm-hmm. they're friends or just through Facebook. And I discovered him and thought he was very knowledgeable. He knew what he was talking about. And then I picked up one of the books that he wrote. Uh, about his experiences in the 60s and 70s when he actually worked as an agent Mm. and he knew all of these, like, Hollywood people. And you think that a book like that will be, like, a tell-all about, like, "Ah, I was hanging out with George Lucas or other famous new Hollywood people. Nope. Well, it's called, I think it's called Lost Horizons under the Hollywood sign. That's exactly what it's called, yeah. Right, and it's Bear Manor Media put it out. And it's uh, a book of anecdotes about old Hollywood Mm -hmm. or particularly, like, B-movie guys from like the 30s 40s 50s people that he befriended you know much later on like in the 80s and 90s people like robert flory who directed murders in the room morgue with bella lugosi people like paul marco who mm. was one of ed wood's entourage or even like big names like john carradine like people that like when you flip open the book and you look at the index of names you're like oh i know that person i know that person i know that person mm-hmm. but there's a lot of names that you may not recognize right from the get-go but then when you read you're like oh okay i understand who this person is and i have seen them in this film yeah so like an example of that would be there's a good chapter about david manners and david manners was the romantic lead in the 1931 dracula Mm -hmm. he was also in the black cat with lugosi and karloff and the mummy so that's a guy who he was in a bunch of these horror movies in the early 30s and then he was disgusted with hollywood swore off it and went off and lived a life as a civilian somewhere and hated Hollywood and David Del Vale just started like going to visit him anyway mm-hmm. and he didn't want to talk about Hollywood but I guess he liked visitors uh, he was also closeted as well so David Del Vale started like bringing a friend of his from the gay porn industry <laughs> and David Manners was like oh well you know if you keep bringing friends like that <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of his perspectives and a lot of his friendships came out of that because a lot of those actors were closeted too. So Paul Marco is an interesting example of that. Paul Marco played Kelton the cop in Plan 9 from Outer Space and mm-hmm. a couple of other Ed Wood movies. And then at some point in the 80s, 
you know, Paul Marco was working in the prop department at Paramount, I think, and Joe Dante was working there. And Paul Marco knew that Dante was a fan of the Edward movies. He said, hey, you know, Kelton the Cop? Well, that's me. And Joe Dante said, oh, Kelton the Cop, you're a cult star. You should go on the convention circuit. And, (laughs) And famous last words, because Paul Marco interpreted that to mean, okay, I'll quit my job at Paramount with a pension Mm -hmm. and blow all my savings into the Kelton brand. (laughs) And there's... Well, uh, little Will Sloan sent him a letter, didn't he? (laughs) I I spoke to Kelton on the phone, in fact. Yeah, there you go. Don't give up your dream, Kelton. Keep going. (laughs) I mean, I was so excited to be talking to (laughs) Paul Kelton the Cop Marco. But in that chapter, it talks about how, you know, a friend of Paul Marco's like they died and Paul Marco just decided, oh, well, I live in their house now. They, this person <laughs> wow. left me their house. Spotter's rights. And people were saying, uh, Paul, I don't think I don't think that's how the law r- works. He's like, possession is nine tenths of the law. <laughs> like, uh, not, not really. And then all of a sudden, this this young guy was was showing up there and it was like, oh, that's my son. Because mm. Paul wouldn't admit that yeah. it wasn't the son. And then there was a teary phone call some mm-hmm. time at night where he was like, David, please get me a trick. Uh, Del Vale, he's not writing the book in a salacious way. No, 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 no. You feel that like all of these people were genuine. He cared about them. Mm-hmm. And these stories are more coming from a place of like sadness that he wanted. Sometimes if their circumstances were not so good, better for them. Yeah. And considering that most of the people were on the last legs of their lives. They don't usually go with like a smile on their face into the sunset. Well, you know, a lot of them are, uh, didn't exactly invest their money wisely. No. You know, they're working to the end. There's a nice chapter about Vincent Price. Yes, there know. is. They were very good friends together. Um, David Delville working on a film that people don't really talk about from whisper to a scream, the mm. Jeff Burr film that was one of Vincent Price's last roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, Scream Factory put out an amazing Blu-ray with two 90 minute documentaries on it. Uh, <laughs> But, but I love this book because, again, the stories aren't, for the most part, that salacious, no. despite what I said about Paul But Marco. there's stuff that you have never heard about and that is fascinating about these figures that, you know, conventionally, most people wouldn't care about because they don't recognize their names. Yeah, but they have they were around at interesting mm-hmm. times and they just have strange textured lives. Like, what's the story about Robert Flory? Robert Flory, at one point, uh, David was visiting him and Flory went, hey, come and see this. And he brought David into a like a secret room <laughs> that had arguably the world's largest collection of Napoleon memorabilia. <laughs> and David looked around the room and went, wow. And uh, me and Will had the same thoughts going, well, I hope this collection of Napoleon memorabilia was kept. It was not. <laughs> no, it was just, I guess, sold and mm. pittance to here and there. Yep, you know? when Robert Flory passed away. Yeah. I mean, like, reading even, like, chapters on people that you don't know, like, you will see people that will show up that you recognize. Yeah. Like, Because, like, all these old timers will go to parties, you know, looking for gigs or trying to make contacts or just wanting to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. And it's people that... It's sobering to consider that no one cared. Yeah. Like, no one cared, other than, like, people like David Del Vale or, like, Joe Dante. Well, it's so exciting to me to think... It's exciting and sad to think, God, if I were just in Hollywood in the 80s, I just could have gone and, like hung out with John Carradine if I <laughs> yeah, wanted to. Because he would have just been around probably yeah. getting boozed up at the local bar. Yeah, nobody cared. You could just you could just seek these people out and hang out with I them. I mean, Jeff Burr said that um, he went with his producer partner to Vincent Price's home to offer him a role. You know, another book that I really like is that one about uh, film collectors. You, you think it's just about film collection, but it's also just about like the, these people who would seek out 
in that book, it's silent stars. And so it's like at the old folks home, there's like a pecking order of people. And, <laughs> and Minta Durfee, who used to be Fatty Arbuckle's wife, mm. like she would act like she was like the queen of the nursing home. And she would sit there and she, she would call herself Mrs. Arbuckle. And, Wait, uh, I think you're talking about a different book that I'm thinking about. Because you're talking about the one that was like really snarky. Yeah, right? that one. That uh, one. I don't remember what it was called. <laughs> Probably uh, Better Left because it was written by someone who's just licking their nose down at all these uh, very passionate film memorabilia collectors. Well, no, it's an unreliable narrator, but I mm. still do love that book. I mean, I really love A Thousand Cuts, mm. uh, the book about the... Have you read this one? The Underground Collectors of Film Prints? Oh, no, I gotta read that. Yeah. Oh, it's so good because it's all these obsessive personalities that are all about just collecting celluloid mm. at a time where it meant something Owning a film was unimaginable. So to have it, like a print of it, was everything. Well, something that I learned from the other book, and Lord knows how reliable it is, mm -hmm. but like there would be people who would just be awful people. They would have terrible personalities. Yes. Uh, but but people would be friends with them because they're the only person who had a print of yeah. the coconuts. Or, you know. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and it'd be, I, oh man, yeah, a thousand cuts. You'll read and be like, I want to become a print collector. And as you keep going, you're like, oh my God, no. Too much work. <laughs> what a nightmare. Yeah. And like the films will be destroyed on you. They cost hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And like a lot of the people are like sick. And their hobby has, like, destroyed their lives. <laughs> I mean, we own lots of DVDs and Blu-rays, and I don't think we'll stop collecting anytime yeah. soon. But thankfully, it's not making the floorboards of our apartment sag with the weight of them. How'd you like that clip that was on Twitter the other day of Leonard Malton sorting through his 16mm uh, collection? Heaven to me. Beautiful. Just... We did a Leonard Malton episode very early on in our Patreon, and we were a little bit dismissive of him. Yeah. Because as a critic, we were like, he is the mainstream guy. At the time, we believed that. Well, and also we were talking about his... His, his guide. His guide. Yes. Which is, yeah, like the mainstream canon. Because, you know, for him to make money, he had to go on stuff like... Um, Entertainment you know, Enter Tonight. Tonight, where it's like the widest mass as possible. But when you see him now on his podcast and his Twitter, and he's uh, working with his daughter who facilitates all this stuff, like, just, like, 30 minutes of him and his friend going through his print collection, oh. checking if they're Technicolor or Eastman Color, or seeing if they've gone vinegar or not. At one point, he opens a can, and he's like, oh, the little thing we put in, it came out green, which means that this print is actually good. <laughs> and it's like the joy yeah. on his face, and the fact that he can finally, like, share this with a wide audience. Yeah, well, like, this is a guy who, when he was young, he was, like, editing zines. Mm -hmm. of, and he he was one of those guys, like David Del Vale, who would go out and seek... Mm -hmm. old-timers like he was pen pals with mo howard well he has the the <laughs> joke that uh, we talked about before that he met one of the bowery boys at a party hunts hall yeah and he told joe dante and joe dante contacted hunts hall and then told malton uh yeah he wanted too much money yeah <laughs> i mean you know what a guy who's a super movie fan fred olin ray mm -hmm. has all of those people in his movies mm -hmm. and people don't usually talk about that because they usually say like ah his movies are what they are but he had hunts hall in one of his films late in his career so great and like that is just like Olin Ray doing that because he loves it not because he thinks it's gonna make money or something like yeah. that and if those film fans keep going I mean they, they can't keep going for very much longer can they that's sad well there will be new generations of old <laughs> The Justins, the Justin and uh, Will's directing films. All, and... all the people that I love are dead now. <laughs> yeah. I, I used to, I used to write people for autographs. I used to write like mm, the, really? Ed, the Ed Wood people. When for did autographs. you stop? I mean, well, I mean, you know, after I was like 
13 on autograph didn't yeah really me too because to me. i was a big autograph hound when yeah. i was a teenager as well then like every if i went to go see a movie and the cast was there i needed their autograph and at a certain point i was like i don't need their autograph yeah. and i don't really need to talk to them either because i wouldn't have anything to say i do treasure the autograph that i have of paul marco <laughs> do you in my basement yeah <laughs> um, put it in will's coffin as well as his dracula cape <laughs> 